this morning uh, as we're coming to the back end of our study of Philippians and what the marks of a Christian are. We um, borrowed from Galatians where Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Uh, And we wanted to look at what does it mean for us to have modern day marks of Jesus. And today we will look at bearing the mark of peace. We're going to be in these scriptures for the next two Sundays uh, as we look at the marks of peace one and then part two. Uh, I'm very glad that Sarah backed up two verses. I was going to do that in the sermon myself because as we pick up on on chapter four, verse one, and you see uh, where the Greek is translated there with the word therefore, you can always look at that in the scriptures and understand that that's the connective tissue from what just went before. It's the indicative of what Paul was saying before. It's the result of that. So whenever you and I see therefore in the Bible, it's calling us to action. It's calling us to a response of what we just read before. And so when we see our citizenship is in heaven and we are his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself, Therefore, and that's what's coming next. Therefore, this is how we respond. I don't know. Um, I was. It was funny when Jim was talking about knowing someone. Probably, well, I wouldn't say probably for sure. No one on this earth knows me better than my wife, and uh, she knows how restless I get in uh, snow days. And uh, I was never good about being inside. I was never an inside kid. If it was raining outside, I was that kid that was like, well, Mom, give me an umbrella. Give me some galoshes. i got to get out of here. i got to go do something. Uh, and my mother would dress me up and send me out in the storm. It was fine with her. Um, you know, and when it snows around here, I, I, I find excuses. We need bread. We, we need cheese. Don't we, Lee? Don't we need something? i got to go. And uh, so I seek for ways to get out. I get restless when um, things around me aren't going the way I think that they should. And and, um, it causes me to understand this truth that I want you to read with me this morning, that that restlessness causes you and I to wonder. What I mean by wonder, it causes us to frantically grope and, and grip frantically for any anchor in the storm. And so when the storms come in our lives... When it's a snow day and we feel trapped, when we feel like I, I, I don't know what to do with the circumstances that are all around me, it creates in us this restlessness. And the tendency is for us to begin to just grope and grip and grab and frantically for anything there is out there to hold on to that will give us an anchor in the storm, some sense of peace to hang on to. And many of us, you know, look at... at at the television for that, we look at addictions for that, we look at another people for that, we look at all sorts of idols that we create in our life to be that anchor in the storm for us. But here's the truth. Only the weight of God's presence in our lives can stabilize us against the gales of life with a supernatural mark of peace. When the storms are really raging in our life, The only thing, the only one that can help us stand against that with some sense of peace is the presence of God in our life. And so Paul 
beckons you and I and exhorts you and I, therefores you and I to understand what do we need to do to understand that peace, to gain that presence of God in our life, as, as Paul would say here, a peace that would pass understanding. And we're going to really focus on that next week. But this week I want to just talk about these steps that Paul gives us to begin to move into understanding what it means for you and I to be in the presence of God. Look at this verse, verse with me because the, the beginning, the first step is right in here where Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for with joy and crown, here's the first one, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Well, what does he mean by that? What does Paul mean for us to stand firm? Another translation says stand fast. Another one says to stand uh, strong. It means for us to look at who we are in Christ and stand in that. See, what he says is, you are to stand firm in the Lord. Well, how do we do that? How do we begin to stand firm in the Lord? Well, one, one of the things that we must understand, we, to stand firm in the Lord, we need to know the Lord. Exactly what Jim was saying this morning. So many Christians know a lot about the Lord. Some of us have gone to school to learn how to be professional religionists. And I can tell you there's a lot of things I know about Jesus. There's a lot of things I know about the implications of Jesus. There's a lot of things I know about the church of Jesus. There's a lot of things I've known for pastoring for over 20 years about the people of Jesus. But none of those things equate to me knowing Jesus. How is it that I can know Jesus well, the first thing is, is I must know him as he's revealed himself in his word. I need to spend time with Jesus through the Holy Spirit unveiling his word to me. If I don't know his scriptures, then I can't know him. By his sovereign choice, and we call it a special revelation, God by his sovereign choice has decided to reveal who he is and about his nature in his word we call the Bible. Now, many of us think it's just writings of men or it's interpretations of men, but the Bible itself says it's something quite different from that. It says that it actually is the Word of God, and it defines who God is, and it tells us what our duty is in response to God defining who He is. The Bible itself says that it is the absolute truth of which we are to depend upon for life, and for what our duty in life is. The scriptures convict us. They drive us to the cross. And they tell us who Jesus is. If you and I aren't spending time in the words and defining Jesus as the way that he has defined himself in the scripture, we cannot know Jesus. And if we do not know Jesus, we don't know his presence in our life. Now, I'm not just talking about here of scriptural memory. That would be like, I know a lot about the Bible. A lot of you can quote addresses of, of scripture. You can say, well, Hebrews 13:12 says X. Or you can say second hesitations has, has this in it. The Pharisees were able to do that. But they didn't know Jesus. For you and I to know the Word means that we have the Word, we plant the Word in our heart, and we respond to it in our lives. 
not just respond to it out of obligation, but we respond to it with transformed hearts that can see no other way to live except the way that Jesus beckons us to live. That we cannot have any other relationship with him other than the relationship he defines for us to have with him. The word of God is the absolute way for you and I to know who Jesus is and what he calls us to do. But if we only know about the word and we don't know the word intimately as ingrained as part of our life, we begin to miss the point. I used to be able to tell you all 66 books of the Bible within about 30 seconds. I had to do it to get out of school. But that doesn't mean necessarily that I knew the 66 books of the Bible and what they said to my heart. That takes time. That takes commitment. That takes prayer. That takes an intentional understanding of what is God telling me here and how can it transform my life out there. We pray. Not only do we read, but we pray. Not just a formalized prayer. I know there's all sorts of books about prayer, and and they're helpful, some of them. But let me tell you the key to prayer that I have found. Exposure of your heart. It's the scariest thing in the world. To kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, here's my heart. Here's the ugliness of it. Here's the beauty of it. Here's the place where it's fallen. Here's the place where it's fixed. Here's everything about me. I want you to know my heart. And isn't it amazing that God has provided the blood of His Son to allow you and I to come to Him with that kind of honesty and that kind of rawness and that kind of risk to come before a holy, holy, holy God in the righteousness of His Son and say, God, here I am, all of me, the good, the bad, the ugly, I'm here. I want to know you and I want you to know me. Prayer is just telling God, here's my heart. So we read the scriptures, we understand the scriptures, we apply the scriptures, and we pray. But I want you to notice the third thing here that Paul talks about in in the presence of God. Look at how he refers um, here. He says, I want you brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown to stand firm with me in the Lord. I'm adding the with me because it's implied there that you and I together collectively share the presence of the Lord with one another. That you are the people that I depend upon to encourage me in Jesus. To stand firm, to hold on to the gospel, to the truth of the scriptures. Paul says to stand firm, you and I need one another. This word stand firm is a really interesting word because it's a word that's used outside of the Bible in that modern culture as a soldier that's standing firm against the onslaught of the enemy. It's though he's by himself on top of a hill and the enemy is coming upon him. And we're exhorted, stand firm. 
Well, there's no better way to stand firm as a warrior than to see the other warriors next to you standing firm as well. It's only in that collective body, it's only in that collective nature that you and I are able to stand against the onslaught of our enemy, the devil, who would seek to undo us, as Martin Luther would put it. Don't you know that's his number one mission? is to have you and I undone. And the quickest way that he can complete that is to have us divided. To have us turned in on one another and angry at one another. But look at what Paul says about his brothers here in the Philippian church. My brothers and implied sisters, my brothers, my family, my intimate ones, You and I have something in common. Yeah, you may not like the way I part my hair. You may not like the jokes I tell. You may not like the shoes I wear. But you and I have something in common that goes beyond that. We belong to Jesus. We have a spiritual genetic code that we share together that supersedes all of our differences. And that's you and I have Him. And we are His. And by that, we are brothers. And we are sisters. We are intimate ones. But it's more than that. He says, it's whom I long, I love, and I long for. And then he goes on to say this. My joy. Do you look at your brothers and sisters and the first word that comes to your mind about them is my joy? Oh, you can say my church is my joy. I'm sure almost all of us in here would say that. If someone said, what do you think about your church? Oh, I love my church. I love my church. But we have a few quirky people in it. But I want you to know I love my church. But there's that one person that that sings off key. But I want you to know I love my church. But then there's that person that they want to do such and such. But I want you to know I love my church. Except for that, there's that one person that just irritates me to death. But I love my church. What you love is your concept of what a church should be. But you're not loving your church. You're loving a vision that you have of a church somewhere that you developed in your own mind. But you're not loving the church. Loving the church. It says, let me tell you about so and so and how they encourage me in the Lord and they make me feel joy. Let me tell you how we ministered together out in the community, how we grabbed shovels together and we dug holes in a playground. Let me tell you how so-and-so ministered to me when my loved one passed. I want to tell you about how I really enjoyed just reading the Scriptures with a couple of my friends the other day. These people mean more to me than anything. 
Those are things that communicate, I love my church. And you see, Paul says, when you and I can get there, and the way that we get there is in Jesus, realizing that every one of us have this common bond, that we love Jesus and he loves us, and we're family, we are the intimate ones, then we can begin to move into, you know what, it's my sister and some things I don't understand, but I love her. She's my joy. He's my brother. There's some things he does I don't understand. But I want you to know, he's my joy. Because he's in Jesus and I am too. Jesus died just as much for him as he did for me. We have that in common. And, and, you know what? He gave us all a common commission. He gave every one of us a common order. He gave every one of us a common vision and destiny. Remember? You remember what he said, right? Do what? Go where? All the world, all the nations. And do what? Make disciples. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gave us all that same common mission. We have that together. Which brings us to step number two. Paul says not only do we stand firm, but we must stand in unity. He says, I entreat Eudodia and Sintica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Why is that so important to understand? Because Paul's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to people whose names are in the book of life, fellow believers. And he's asking them, to, he's entreating them, he's begging them to agree in the Lord. That's the place where you and I can agree. You and I can agree in the Lord's mission. You and I can agree in the Lord's commission. Every, one truth that we all should agree on is the Great Commission. Right? We can all agree on that. All of us who are followers of Jesus, we should agree that Jesus said, go into all the nations discipling, right? Can't we all agree on that? That one thing, that we all have that common mission. Now, you and I can disagree about methods on how we should do that. That's fine. But because we're in the Lord and we understand the common mission, we should disagree agreeably. And not only that, we shouldn't separate and draw into camps like Sintica and Utica have done here. In other words, we shouldn't go out into the parking lot and lobby our constituency out in the parking lot or in the lobby or in the lunchroom or in a private meeting. We shouldn't do that, but we should come together and disagree agreeably for the sake of the Lord. If we cannot do that, if we refuse to do that, then disunity is our future. And if disunity is our future, how can we stand firm? 
How can you stand fast? Going back to the analogy that Paul gives us of a soldier standing against the onslaught of the enemy, looking to other soldiers to encourage him. What if you turn around to the person that you're expecting to encourage you and they've got a gun pointed at you? Are you feeling encouraged? There was no sadder thing for us to hear who had children in Iraq or in Vietnam than to hear someone was killed by friendly fire. Even if it's accidental, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a sad, sad thing to hear. How many of our churches today are killing one another with friendly fire? How can we expect them to stand firm against the enemy? Didn't our master tell us a house divided cannot stand? If you and I are to bear the mark of peace in our life, we must have the presence of the Lord in our life. And to have the presence of our Lord in our life, then we must understand we must stand firm in Him and in one another and have unity with one another. I read a story not too long ago about a young man who had a, a job offer. when he, This was years ago with Amico Oil, and it was to Cairo, Egypt. And his, his wife said to him, Hey, sport, I'm not going to Cairo. And he said, well, honey, it's a great promotion. I'm going to make a lot more money than what I make now. And she said, I don't care how much money you're making. Me and the kid aren't going to Cairo. And he felt in a real trap and a real dilemma because he was saying, well, this is a great promotion for me. And if I, if I don't go, I'm going to be bitter that I never took the advantage of the opportunity. And the wife's thinking, well, if I... If I don't support him, then he's going to look at me with bitterness for the rest of his life. And they were in a dilemma. And they took a break from the dilemma for just a moment in their minds and they said to themselves and to one another, what do you suppose this marriage is all about? Is this my marriage or our marriage? Is it my career or is this our career? Is it my promotion or is it our promotion? Is it your home and my home or is it our home? And it's when they came into unity of submission to one another that they were able to make a decision that both agreed with. Yes, they ended up going to Cairo, but that's not the point. The point is they came in unity over things that they disagreed about and found agreement in their unity. You see, there's a lot of things 200 people will disagree about. But there's a commonality that says it's us. It's our church, not just your church. He's our Lord, not just your Lord. These are our scriptures, not just your scriptures. And isn't it why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, not my Father? Unity is critically important because unity helps us go into step number three, which is joy. Joy by rejoicing in the Lord. Look at verse four with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
peace grows in you and I along with joy. It's a byproduct of joy. How do we find joy? Well, it's not in ourselves. It's not in our circumstances. It's not even in each other. Where does the Scripture tell us that joy is to be found? Rejoice in the Lord. If you and I cannot look at the Lord and find much to be joyful about and much to rejoice in, we got to begin to question, do I know the Lord? Well, I tell you, there's a lot of things I can look at in my own life and I don't find a super amount of joy in. I, you know, I, I'm getting a little arthritic in some of my fingers. That's not a joyful occasion. The needle on the scale in the morning doesn't seem to be going in the direction I'd like for it to go, no matter how hard I try. That doesn't give me a great amount of joy. And I don't know about you who have kids, but I have found that my kids don't always do what I think that they should do and how they should do it. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily bring me a great ton of joy. But I always know where I can find joy when I stop and I turn to the one who is joy. The one who is making all things work for my good. The one who is so glorious and beautiful that these fleshly eyes can't behold, but one day I will have glorified eyes. They will be able to see him as he really is. The one who provided for me this amazing shelter that I have, these, this food, this air, this warmth, this building, these people. I can look at him and I see great joy. The one who loved me, who died for me, who gave me eternal life, who took my sins away from me and the punishment of him and the perjury that I couldn't be his. And has told me, I'm clean. It's finished. You're mine. I find great joy in that. The one who is love, not just an aspect of love, but the one who very verily defines love, loves me. I find great joy in that. Paul says, look at those things and begin to rejoice. Rejoice in those things and you'll find yourself being a joyful person. You know what I found about joy? It's incredibly infectious. I like to be around joyful people. Maybe it's sinful, maybe I shouldn't confess it, but sometimes the really super critical people is hard for me to spend a lot of time with. I don't know about you. I don't know, some of you may wake up and go, I'd like to find the most critical person I know today and hang out and have lunch with them. You might be at the table by yourself. And I don't know what that says, but just think about that. But don't you know someone who's full of joy? When you're sad, who do you want to be around? Don't you have that person of joy? That says, I need to go be with that person. I'll have some joy. Joy is infectious. It's what encourages you and I. It's what helps us have joy. When you and I are rejoicing in the Lord, it's much more uh, easy for you and I to rejoice in one another. How can we do that? 
I want to tell you a story. Many of you have heard it before, but it bears repeating. It's, a, it's an amazing story that puts things in perspective of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you have heard this, where she was at a conference, and she was in the, in the ladies' room before the conference, and a, a couple other ladies was in there, and one of them was putting her lipstick on or you know, adjusting her makeup in the mirror, and she looked over at Johnny Erickson Tata, and those of you who don't know, she was a young woman in a diving accident. It was a paraplegic. She lost all feeling from her shoulders down, but has gone on to be a great Christian testimony and author and speaker. And before one of her conferences, a woman adjusting her makeup looked over at Johnny and said, Johnny, you're beautiful. You have such joy. You always seem so put together. And she said, let me tell you about my joy. My joy comes hard won. She said, what do you mean? She said, well, my husband gets up at 6 in the morning and wakes me up, takes care of a few necessities for me. And then I'm back in bed and he leaves. And I'm there for an hour or so by myself in bed before my caregiver comes to make my coffee. And it's in that hour when I'm alone in that room that my pain and my struggle is more evident than ever before. And it's there that I begin to wonder, God, what have you done? Why is my life this way? He says, but then I turn my focus on all that he's blessed me with, all that he's done. And then I hear the door open, and it's my helper. And I said, I hear her making the pot of coffee and getting my breakfast ready. I pray hard, Lord, let me have your joy for this woman who's come to help me. I'm so blessed to have someone in my life that would assist me in the way she's assisting me. Someone to help me put my makeup on. Someone to make my coffee. Someone to to be here and encourage me and give me assistance. She says, then my helper comes through the room and I'm able to smile at her and say good morning. See, my joy comes, but it's hard won at the throne of God. And she said, the more weakness I find in myself, the more strength I find in God to give me the joy that I need. If you and I are joyless, then we must turn to the Lord and rejoice in Him. And then we will find out step four becomes almost second nature to who we are. Gracious. Look with me in verse 5. Let your reasonableness, and this reasonableness is a word that means gracious. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Peaceable people are gracious people. People who have the Lord in their presence. And they know that they're in the presence of the Lord are gracious people. They tend to have deference in the situation for others. There's a genuineness of their concern for the welfare of other people. Normally, there's the people in the crowd that look to assist rather than to demand their own way. You and I 
are to be a gracious people. And the very motivation for you and I to do that is right there in that same verse. Because the Lord is near. He is at hand. It's easy for us to forget that in this moment, in this place, and at this time, in this very, this very room, He's with us. It's easy to forget when you go through those doors out there when you leave today, He's still with you. That everywhere you and I go and everything that you and I do and everything that you and I say, we do say in His presence. Oftentimes we're a lot more concerned about where we fall than where we succeed. We're much more concerned about the external, the outside of the cup, like the Pharisees were, than we are with the heart. Graciousness comes when you and I realize the depth of our own dark hearts, which have been radically redeemed by the blood of Jesus and are being transformed on a daily basis in spite of our sinfulness into conforming into His image. And then remembering He's doing exactly the same thing in every single follower of His own. Some of you, I know your story and I know it fairly well. Some of you know my story and you know it fairly well. And there's a graciousness that we have with one another because we understand God's at work in each other's lives. He's writing out our stories in His own sovereign hand. But He's using the same ink in your story as He's using in my story and that's His sovereign grace. The fact that you have a story in Him and I have a story in Him only comes by His grace and His mercy. And it's in that that you and I can find the way to be gracious people, gentle people to one another. When these qualities of steadfastness and unity and joy and graciousness are blooming in our life, you and I have the ability to experience more of God's presence in our life. Yes, God is always there, but we don't always experience it. These steps help us begin to experience God's presence in our life. And here's what I'd have you take away this morning, that perseverance in the steps of Jesus. And this is really what we're being called to do, right? When we look at Jesus, He stood firm. When we look at Jesus... He and the Father were unified. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit. I don't know of anyone that could have had more joy than Jesus. And Paul has just got through saying that. But the joy that was set before Him, He endured the suffering of the cross. And don't you understand what that joy was? One element of that joy is you. That you would be with Him in glory. That made Him joyful. That you and I would see His glory. That we would be with Him with Him there in His glory. And for that, He was willing to endure the shame of the cross. For you, you are His joy. I'm His joy. 
And who could be more gentle with you than Jesus? The sovereign God of the universe. How could he be more gentle with you than he has been? And why would we not want to express that same gentleness to one another? You see, persevering in the steps of Jesus infuses us, you and I, it'll infuse us with a peace that's unfathomable. As Paul will say next week, with a peace that goes beyond our understanding. And a peace that removes the distractions and allowing us to see God to rest instead of restlessness. Some of you have experienced a hurricane. I grew up with them. I, they were a pretty normal, natural thing. They were sort of an afternoon storm for us in Florida. The interesting thing in a Florida and in a, in a relatively strong hurricane, and Georgia too, um, if you've not experienced, is the eye wall. Right when the storm is at its fiercest and you don't think you're going to make it, all of a sudden this peaceful eye passes over you. And you just let down a moment and you go, wow, I think I'm taking a nap. That's only going to last about 20 minutes, so make it a quick nap. But it's in that moment that we see this incredible peace in the eye of the storm. But don't you know that's what Jesus has done for you and I in this world? Though it's raging around us, we dwell in Him, the true eye of the storm. Remember who you are and remember who one another is. Let's pray.